اعوذ بالله من الشیطان الرجیم بسم الله الرحمن الرحیم صلی اللہ وسلم علیک یا سیدی و یا مولای یا رسول اللہ صلی اللہ وسلم علیک یا سیدی و یا مولای یا ابا عبداللہ یا غریب یا مضموم کربلا یا لیتنا کنا معکم سادتی فنفوز فوزا عظیما قال الله تعالى في محكم كتابه الكريم أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ذلك ومن يعظم شعائر الله فإنها من تقوى القلوب God says in the Holy Quran, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. And whoever holds in honor the symbols of God, such an honoring stems from the piety of the heart. Amanna billah, sadaqallahu al-aliyyul azim. Let us begin by enlivening our hearts and minds in our gathering with the salutations upon the Holy Prophet and his purified progeny, Sallu ala Muhammadin wa Ali Muhammad. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa Allah. For the past 11, 12 nights, many of us attended the majalis, the gatherings to commemorate Aba Abdullah al-Husayn alayhi salam. These gatherings where we expressed our mourning, our grief, our sorrow. Many of us, we participated in sponsoring food and events in the name of Imam Hussein and the martyrs of Karbala. Many of us, we observed the various rituals associated with this mourning. We lamented. We wept, we cried, and we engaged in other rituals to express this grief over Aba Abdullah al Hussein. We internalized the pain and the atrocities that are associated with the tragedy, the great tragedy of Aba Abdullah al Hussein and his family and his companions. And observing, in observing, Muharram and Ashura, these majalis, and the mourning and the grieving that goes along with that, we sought the pleasure of God. We sought proximity, closeness to God. And we sought the intercession, the shafa'ah of Muhammad wa al Muhammad salawatullahi wa salamuhu alayhim ajma'in. But now we have to ask ourselves, what comes next?
What happens now? Ashura is over. The majalis are coming to an end. What's next? What do we do after this? And to answer this question, it's important for us to recognize that human beings typically, we express three levels of reactions to any event. The first level is an emotional reaction. In most cases, when there's an event, whatever the event may be, the first level is an emotional reaction to this event. An outpouring, an emotional outpouring. If it's joy, we feel a sense of happiness, delight. If it's tragic, we feel a sense of sadness and grief. We react. Human beings were emotional. And it's a good thing to be emotional. That means that something is working. If you're not emotional, if you have no emotional reaction to something, whether it's happy or sad, that means something's wrong. So the first level is this emotional reaction. The second level often is an intellectual reaction. You've expressed your emotions. You've had your emotional feelings. After that, you begin to think. You begin to ponder. You begin to reflect about that e event that you're experiencing. This comes usually after the initial emotional reaction. That's the second level, an intellectual reaction. And the third level is an active response, an active reaction. And that is when your emotions and your thoughts, they come forward and they produce action, they produce activity. How does this look like? Let's take an example to understand how these three levels, how they look like. Take the example of a car accident. May Allah protect you and your families and keep you all safe. Many of you have probably been, been involved in uh, a car accident. Sometimes it's a minor car accident, right? But sometimes it could be major. You notice that we express these levels of reactions. The first is an emotional reaction. Someone hits you from behind or God forbid you hit another car and the first thing that happens is this state of anxiety or fear, right? You begin to panic. You might get scared. You might be confused. This is the first level. The second level, what happens? You begin to think. You begin to think about what happened. You begin to contemplate. You look around. You begin to examine your surroundings. You look at everyone in the car. You want to make sure that everyone is okay. You start to process what happened. At first, you might not even process it. You might not even know what's happening. It's just an emotional, you might yell out. You might scream. You might cry. And then you begin to think. You begin to contemplate and think about that event. And then the third level is what? Is the level of action. You get up. You might get out of the car. You check your surroundings, you check the other party to see if they're okay, you check yourself to see if you're okay, you might call the police, ask for help. The third level, after you've 
expressed your emotion and you've thought about it, then the third level is an active response. You engage in particular action. Now in this example, if you have the first response, an emotional response, and the second response, you think, but it stops there. You don't engage in any activity, in any action afterwards. What happens? You might not be able to help yourself or help others. You might even harm yourself. If you don't engage in action, you might even harm yourself in the situation. And so in order for you to save yourself and keep yourself and others protected, you have to act. It's not just an emotional reaction and it's not just an intellectual reaction. The tragedy of Karbala, the tragedy of Imam Hussein, this great event in history, is one that we know induces in everyone an emotional outpour, an emotional response. Anyone who hears the tragic story of Aba Abdullah al Hussein, anyone who hears about what happened to him and to his family and to his children and to the woman will express emotional grief and sorrow. Many of us, we hear the name of Imam Hussein or Abu al-Fadl al-Abbas or Sayyidah Zainab. When we hear that name, those names, we feel a sense of emotion. We can't stop ourselves, we can't help ourselves from feeling some outpouring of emotion. Some people, they hear the name of Imam Hussein and they begin to weep immediately. And this is not just Muslims. This is not just the followers of Ahlul Bayt who have this emotional reaction to the tragedy of Karbala. Many others, many who are not even Muslim, have read about, they've internalized the story of Karbala and they feel emotional. To give you one example, there was a British scholar, academic, and professor. He's a British Orientalist. He was a specialist in the study of Islam and Muslim societies. His name is Edward Granville Brown. He died in 1926. He used to teach in Cambridge in the United Kingdom. He wrote a book called A Literary History of Persia. And in it, he brings up the example of the tragedy of Imam Hussein Listen to his words. I'm going to quote directly what he wrote. He writes, A reminder of the blood-stained field of Karbala, where the grandson of the apostle of God fell at length, tortured by thirst, and surrounded by the bodies of his murdered kinsmen, has been at any time since then sufficient to evoke, even in the most lukewarm and heedless, the deepest emotions, the most frantic grief, and an exaltation of spirit before which pain, danger, and death shrink to unconsidered trifles. This is a professor of Islam and Muslim societies. He's not Muslim himself. 
But he recognizes that Karbala was a great tragedy. That anyone who hears about Karbala is, is going to feel a sense of pain and grief over the tragic events that are related to Imam Hussein alayhi salam and his family and his companions. We know that the Prophet, he told, he foretold this. The Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam, Allahumma salli ala Muhammad. He says in the famous report, "Inna liqatli al-Hussein alayhi salam harara fi qulub al-mu'minin la tabradu abada." He says, "Surely there exists in the hearts of the believers, with respect to the martyrdom of Imam Hussein, a heat that never subsides, never gets extinguished. It's always lit in our hearts." And when we hear the name of Imam Hussein, it grows suddenly. But it's always there. It's never turned off. There's a special place for Imam Hussein in our hearts and the tragedy of Karbala. Special place. This is by divine providence. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has placed the love and affection of Imam Hussein in our hearts. And we express this affection oftentimes through our emotions. However, despite this, it is imperative for the followers of Imam Hussein, not just those who claim to love Imam Hussein, but those who claim that Imam Hussein is a role model for them. He's a leader for them, that they seek inspiration from Imam Hussein as the followers of Aba Abdullah al Hussein alayhi salam. It's imperative for us to go beyond just emotional reaction. It should not stop there. It doesn't stop just with emotional grief, but it goes beyond emotional grief. It goes on to the next level. It goes on to the next level where we begin to contemplate and we begin to think about this great event and the implications of this event. We think, we reflect. We weep, we cry, yes, but it goes beyond that. We begin to really reflect. What is it that I can learn and be inspired by Imam Hussein and his movements? We engage in serious thought, in serious reflection. And so we have to ask ourselves and we ask one another, did Imam Hussein alayhi salam sacrifice himself and his family only for us to cry? Just for us to cry? That's it? Does Imam Hussein need my tears? Who am I? Who am I? Imam Hussein had the angels and the prophets and all of creation weep for him. Who am I? Yes, we cry and we weep and we mourn and we grieve over Aba Abdullah al Hussein. But the tragedy of Aba Abdullah al Hussein was much greater than just to be restricted to grief and mourning and crying. We learn, we are inspired by the lessons and the values that Imam Hussein alayhi salam and his family and his companions and the tragedy of Karbala as a whole. We are inspired by the values and the lessons that we can take from this. If we want to truly live 
We want to live Ashura. We want to live Muharram. Not just as a ritual expression. We want to embody it. Then we have to be able to recharge ourselves with the lessons and values of Imam Hussein alayhi salam. And be able to take these lessons beyond just the days of mourning and grief that are associated with Muharram or Safar. We want these lessons to charge us and to push us so that we can live and work throughout the whole year and throughout our whole lives. It's not just restricted to this particular season. Imam Hussein is much greater than to be mourned over or remembered just for 10 days or 12 days or one month or two months. We learn from Imam Hussein and we charge, recharge ourselves and we recharge our societies towards that which is great. We extract lessons to benefit ourselves and to transform ourselves, transform this grief into active responses, into active reactions for the betterment of ourselves and our societies. So what are some of the lessons? What can we learn from Abu Abdullah? What can we extract? What lessons can we take forward to help us in our lives beyond Ashura, beyond Muharram and Safar? There are many lessons. Tonight, I'd just like to point out a few as examples. Number one is the lesson of reformation, of reform. We all know this. Imam Hussein, when he went out, he left Medina. He called out his mission statement, why he's rising up. And the main objective, he told us, is that he, see, he is seeking the reformation, the reform of the Muslims. Reform means what? Usually we speak about reform in a context of correcting something. That there is something that is deficient, there's a problem with it, and you reform it. You revive it. You revitalize it. So Imam Hussein saw that his society at the time was one that was dying. It was a denigrated society. And it required a jump start. Required a jump start. It was dying. It's kind of like our cars. Sometimes, you know, if you keep the light on in your car, the battery loses power. The car loses power. And it won't even turn on. It dies. The car dies. It won't even turn on. What do you need to do? You need to give it a jump start. You use another source of power to give it a jump start so that it's revived again, so that it can function again. Imam Hussein saw that the community around him was dying. That's it. It was not starting up anymore. And so he decided to give it a jump start to reform, to revitalize it. And so this is a great lesson that we learn from Imam Hussein. The importance of reform. The importance of correcting that which is wrong. The importance of working towards the betterment of ourselves and our societies. But we cannot fix society if we do not fix ourselves, brothers and sisters. Successful reform begins with the self. It begins with the self. It doesn't begin out there. It begins internally and it works its way outwards. That's how it becomes effective. How can I expect to reform society if I'm not ready to reform myself? It's not going to work. If I want it to be successful, I begin with myself. 
and I begin with my deepest emotions and feelings and behaviors. I search deep within and I try to correct that very foundation. Before I go to even my actions, I go to my feelings. I go to my feelings and I try to correct them. I try to fix those negative feelings that I might have. The envy that I might have. I see someone around me, my neighbor, family, friends, stranger. You know, they're living a particular life. They have certain blessings. And I feel a sense of envy or jealousy towards them. That's a deep emotion. It's deep down. Sometimes I might not even express this jealousy or envy. But it's important for me to work that out. Don't let that jealousy develop. Don't let that envy develop. It begins with our deepest emotions, our deepest feelings. And then it translates then to altering and reforming our behavior so that our behavior is correct. That our behavior is positive. We have to be able to eliminate selfish behaviors, brothers and sisters. Because selfishness destroys us and it destroys society. This is the lesson that we learned from Imam Hussein. You know, Imam Hussein, before he arrived to Karbala and on the seventh day, he and his family and his companions, they were blocked off from water, huh? You know, the command came to block off the water from the camp of Imam Hussein, not to allow them to have access to the water. This was the selfishness of Yazid and the Umayyad army before he arrived to Karbala. Before he arrived to Karbala, this is mentioned in the books of history. That when he was first stopped from entering into Kufa, Imam Hussein had told his companions and those who were with him to gather water. They had water containers. They were traveling. So they had water containers and they had gathered water. And the tradition tells us that the army, the Umayyad army came under the command of Al-Hurra bin Yazid al-Riyahi. He was the commander of the army. But then of course he went on to the side of Imam Hussein alayhi salam. He sought forgiveness. When Al-Hur came along with his battalion, 1,000 men to stop Imam Hussein from entering into Kufa. When the soldiers came, Imam Hussein realized that they were thirsty. Not only were they thirsty, their animals, their horses were thirsty. You know what he did? He turned to his companions. He told them, you have water. Go and quench the thirst of these th thirsty people. You don't think that Imam Hussein salam knew how deceptive the Umayyads were? Karbala wasn't the first time that, the that people were blocked off from water. It happened many years earlier. This was... The Umayyads' favorite pastime, this was their favorite strategy in the army, in the battle of Safin, that Muawiyah, the father of Yazid, he waged against Amir al-Mu'mineen and his companions, they also did the same. They also blocked off the water from Imam Ali and his camp. 
But Imam Ali had a huge army and he was able to break through and make them flee. You don't think Imam Hussein knew the deceptiveness of the Umayyads? But Imam Hussein is not selfish. Imam Hussein is selfless. He sees empathy, he's empathetic. He sees someone thirsty, he gives them water. Doesn't matter who they are. Doesn't matter. Look at the lesson of Abu al-Fadl al-Abbas Abu al-Fadl al-Abbas, he wasn't thirsty when he arrived to the river. He was also thirsty. But he remembers the thirst of Aba Abdullah. He remembers the thirst of the woman and the children. And he says, no, I'm not going to drink before them. They're thirsty as well. I'm not going to put myself before others. This is what it means to be selfless versus being selfish where we're always thinking about ourselves. Doesn't matter. I don't care what's happening around me in the world as long as I'm okay. We have to be able to reform, to change this selfish behavior and become much more selfless. This is a main lesson that we learn from Imam Hussein and his family and from the tragedy of Karbala. To be selfless, to avoid selfishness at all costs. Another lesson that we learn is the importance of standing up against injustice. I mentioned this the very first night of my lectures. That a main objective of Imam Hussein was to rise up against injustice. But it's important for us to remember, dear friends, that standing up against injustice is an absolute obligation. What does that mean? That means that we stand up against injustice no matter who it's directed at and who is directing it. No, no matter wherever it is, wherever it is, whenever it is, to whom it's directed or who from whom it's directed. When the Quran talks about justice, it talks about justice in these absolute terms. God says, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu, kunu qawwameena bilqisti shuhada'a lillah. O you who believe, uphold justice and equity and bear witness for God. Uphold justice for God on behalf of God. And then what does God say? Walaw ala anfusikum awil walidayni wal aqrabin. Even even when it comes to upholding justice against yourself, against yourself or your parents or your relatives. It's easy for me to uphold justice when I don't know you. When you're my enemy, when you're a stranger, I say, oh, you're unjust. Stop this unjust behavior. You're an oppressor. But am I ready to admit my own injustices? Am I ready to admit that sometimes I am the oppressor? If God forbid my parents or my relatives or my friends, they express injustice, do I say something to them? Will I stand up against injustice if my friends do it? Or do I engage in tribalism, in favoritism, in racism? Oh, because he speaks or she speaks my language or they speak my dialect or they're from my, my same village or from my city, if they do something wrong, that's okay. I'm not gonna say anything. 
But if someone from another village or another city says something wrong, then I'll stand up against them. Or if because this person does not believe in what I believe in, so I'll stand up against their injustice. But if they're a fellow believer, or if they come from my family, or if he or she is my father or mother or my sibling or my spouse or my child, I don't say anything. The Quran asks us to express justice absolutely. Justice is not just us. It's absolute. It's absolute. We stand up for justice and against injustice no matter wherever it is, whenever it is, who does it or who it's against. This is the lesson that we learn from Aba Abdullah al Hussein. I have to ask myself, am I ready to stand up for justice? When I'm tested, especially when I'm tested with my people, my community, my ethnicity, my nationality, am I ready to stand up for justice? Or do I become quiet suddenly because the person belongs to my group and I'm not going to say anything? That's not justice. That's partiality, that's tribalism, that's favoritism. That's what the Umayyads did. That's what the Umayyads did. The Umayyads, they stand up, they stood up, quote unquote, for justice only against their enemies. Only against those who had, they had a problem with. But when it came to their family and their friends, they encouraged it. They encouraged injustice. They allowed for it. But Imam Hussein salam teaches us otherwise. That injustice is injustice, no matter who does it. And this is why we say every day is Karbala and every land is Ashura. And justice begins again, like reformation, it begins with myself. It begins with my community, with my family. Before I go and I change the world and I make the world a better place, it begins with myself. I have to be honest with myself. This is the second lesson. The other lesson is regarding enjoining the good and forbidding the evil. This is another lesson that Imam Hussein he proclaims in his mission statement that I'm going out to enjoin good, to encourage good, and to discourage and to forbid evil. Al-Amr bil-Ma'roof wa-Nahi anil-Munkar. And this tells us that we are responsible not just for ourselves but for society. We live in a highly individualized world, I've said this before, that encourages us just to focus on ourselves at the expense of society, at the expense of others. But we know that we are responsible for the well-being of others around us. We are responsible for the well-being of society as a whole, not just my family and friends, even strangers, even those who I don't know. The Prophet, peace be upon him, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam, he gives a very good example of this. He says this whole world is like a ship and people are the passengers on this ship. Can you imagine for a moment? All of us, all together, we are on a single ship, a very big ship, all together. Now, when you're on a ship, or a plane, or what have you, or a car, any other vehicle, right? If you're on a ship, and one member of this ship, one passenger, 
decides that in his own cabin, he wants to go and he wants to drill a hole in the bottom of the ship. Do we stay silent and quiet? What's our responsibility? We say, oh no, it says, it's his room. It's his room. Let him do whatever he wants. I shouldn't have anything to do with this. It has nothing to do with me at all. No, we don't. Because if he's drilling a hole in the ship, that means that we're all going to sink. We're all going to go down if we don't stop him. Similarly, if you are the one who wants to drill that hole, you say, you know what? I want it. It's my drill. I can do whatever I want. All of you go away. You have nothing to do with me. Can you do this? You have no right. Similarly, when it comes to our responsibilities in this world, we have a responsibility not just to ourselves, but to, towards society for good and for bad. In the way that we interact and deal with one another. My evil behavior, my indecent behavior does not only reflect on me, it reflects on others around me. It influences others around me, it influences my society and my good behavior also does the same. And this is why we are encouraged. This is why it is mandatory for us communally as a collectivity to enjoin good, to encourage that which is good, and to forbid indecency in that which is evil because we're all on the same boat. This is the other lesson that we learn. Finally, the final lesson is a lesson of patience. The importance of patience. Our traditions, they tell us that there are three forms or three levels of patience. One is expressing patience when it comes to fulfilling our obligations. We have obligations, our acts of worship, our social obligations. Sometimes they require patience, right? When I need to pray five times a day and I have to, I, I'm trying to pray on time, that requires a lot of energy and a lot of effort. It requires that I prioritize prayer. That means I might miss out on some things. That means that I might have to stop my movie. That means I might have to stop on the side It might uh, to, to perform my prayers. It means that you know I may have to change my other social plans. Whatever it may be, it requires patience. Fasting during the month of Ramadan is not easy. It's difficult. It's difficult. It requires patience. Performing the Hajj, giving from my wealth, requires enormous patience. Enormous patience. Right? And so, this is one level of patience. Patience when it comes to fulfilling our obligations. The other side, the second level, is patience when it comes to avoiding disobedience. I have to express patience because temptations are around me. It's very tempting for me to consume haram and very easy. You know, you want to order food, you open up your Uber Eats app and there's all kinds of restaurants and they all have beautiful photos with amazing food. It's very tempting. You want to try things out. You've heard your friends talk about how delicious this food is or that food is or, you know, how, how delicious bacon is or what have you, right? or pepperoni, or whatever it is. It requires patience not to disobey God, not to consume haram, 
not to deceive people. It requires patience to be trustworthy and honest when you have an opportunity to make a lot of money if you're dishonest. It requires patience. That's another level of patience. And the third level of patience is in the face of tests and trials and tragedies, calamities. When you're facing tragedy, that you express patience, that you don't surrender, that you don't fall apart. And we learn all of these levels of patience in Ashura and Imam Hussein and his followers. Look at the patience that Sayyida Zainab salam she exhibited. Great patience. Patience that most of us would find unbearable. She doesn't break down. Lady Zainab salam in a famous saying attributed to her, she says, سَأَصْبِرُ حَتَّى يَعْجَزَ الصَّبْرُ عَنْ صَبْرِ Allahu Akbar. She says, I will be so patient that patience itself will be exhausted from my patience. And these are not just words. We saw Lady Zainab was actually enormously patient. Enormously patient. She is not, these are not just claims that she made. She put it into practice. She showed us what it means to be patient in the face of magnificent trial and tragedy. These are lessons that we learn from the Ahlul Bayt These are lessons that we learn from Karbala, the tragedy of Karbala. And this is why it's important for us as the followers of the Prophet, peace be upon him, and his Ahlul Bayt, that we can benefit from Ashura beyond just ritual mourning and that emotional outpouring that we go on to the next level, which is our intellectual reaction. We think about, we contemplate, and then we go beyond that. We take our emotions and our thoughts and we transform that into positive action. Positive action. These are the lessons that we take that we can use to recharge ourselves throughout the entire year long after Muharram and Safar are over. And we need to be recharged. Our souls need to be recharged just like we need to recharge our phones. Sometimes we need to recharge our phones two or three times a day, right? We need to, otherwise you can't use your phone. The same way that we re need to refuel our cars as painful as it is nowadays, your car is done, it's empty, it has no gas. If you want to get to your destination, you have to go and refuel your car. Similarly, we need to recharge our souls, recharge our souls. And there is no better way to do so than gleaning lessons from the Prophet and the Ahlul Bayt. And there is no better way to recharge ourselves than from the lessons that we take from Aba Abdullah al Hussein. This is why the Prophet, he identifies Imam Hussein. He says, Hussein is the lantern of guidance. What does a lantern do? When it's dark, what does the light do? It provides a way for you to see where you're going. Right? Without it, you remain in darkness. You, may, you remain lost. He is the lantern of guidance and the ark and the ship of salvation.
But in order to benefit from the lantern and the ship, you do what? You have to carry the lantern. You have to board the ship. You don't just look at the ship. You have to board the ship. And this is what we learn. This is how we can continue the message and the lessons of Aba Abdullah alayhi salam beyond just Muharram and Safar and this season of mourning and grief. Tonight I dedicate this last night to the bereaved mother of Aba Abdullah al Hussein, Lady Fatima al Zahra alayhi salam. Tonight I want to take you back to Medina. I want to take you back to a time long before the killing of Imam Hussein I want to take you to a time when the Prophet peace be upon him and his family he was on his deathbed his final moments imagine the messenger of God the most beloved he had become very weak and ill he's on his deathbed these are his final hours the tradition says that at those moments, everyone was very sad and grieved for the Prophet. His family surrounded him. They were all around him. He turns to his beloved daughter, Fatima al-Zahra He tells her, my dear Fatima, come forward. Come to me. Come very close to me. She comes close to him, he brings her close, and he whispers something in her ear. When she hears this, she begins to weep and cry. She sheds tears. And then he pulls her back close again, and he whispers something else. Then suddenly she smiles, she's joyous. Afterwards, she is asked, Oh Fatima, what did your father tell you that made you cry and then that, that made you happy? She said, at first my father brought me and he said, my dear Fatima, my time has come. I will be departing this life very soon. When I heard these words, my father, Rasulullah, my beloved father telling me that he will be leaving this life soon, this broke my heart so I burst into tears and then he brought me close again and he told me my dear Fatima I have good news for you you are going to be the first one to follow me into the hereafter we'll be reunited soon my dear Fatima and this is exactly what happened the tragedies began one after another after the Prophet's death they attacked the home of Fatima alayhi salam. This is the daughter of Rasulullah. How can you attack the home of the daughter of Rasulullah? It made, did not matter. Did not matter. They went to the home of Fatima. They brought the firewood. They were ready to burn the door. Some companions, they turned around and they said, what's happening? What's happening right now? Are you really going to order the burning of the home of Fatima, the daughter of the Prophet? Do you not know that she is inside this home? The reply comes, so what? Let it be Fatima, it doesn't matter. The home of Fatima was burned. 
And then they broke into the home of Fatima. They squeezed her behind the door, injuring her, causing her to have a miscarriage. They did not allow her to mourn for her beloved father. The injustices they continued one after another towards Fatima al-Zahra until very soon she became very ill and very weak. And she too lay on her deathbed. During her final moments, Fatima al-Zahra alayhi salam she calls her beloved husband, Amir al-Mu'mineen. She tells him, Ya Abel Hassan, come forward. I have some things I want to tell you. She tells him, Ya Abel Hassan, you see my situation. You know that I will be departing soon. I will be leaving this life soon. But I have a few requests from you. Number one, he tells her, tell me, my beloved, tell me what it is. Whatever I can do for you. She tells her, she tells him, number one, I want you to promise to take care of our children. Hassan and Hussein, Zainab and Umm Kulthum, they will be left without their mother. They will be orphans, huh? They will be left of that love and that compassion that their mother Fatima shows them. I want you to make sure that you take good care of them. Be their father and their mother. Oh, Abel Hassan, this is my first request. My other request is that when I pass away, I want you to wash my body and to shroud me. And then in the middle of the night, I want you to take me to my burial place and to bury me. Don't let anyone know where I will be buried. Don't let anyone participate, huh? Don't let them participate in my burial ceremony. Deny them this. And certainly the day would come shortly after where Fatima Zahra alayhi salam she followed her father Rasulullah she left this world Allahu Akbar Amir al-Mu'mineen he takes the children he takes some of Bani Hashim the close family and some of the close companions the beloved those lovers of Fatima Zahra they take her body in the middle of the night and they bury her in an unknown location. And until this day, we go to Medina and we wander left and right. Where is our beloved Fatima buried? Where do I stand? Which direction do I stand and say, Assalamu alaikum ya Fatima bint Rasulullah. But my dear Fatima, despite the tragedies that occurred and that you experienced. During your final moments, you were surrounded by those who were most beloved to you. You had Amirul Mu'mineen by your side. You had your children and other family members around you. They were embracing you, they were kissing you, they were speaking to you and you were speaking to them. But what about your beloved Hussein? 
Your beloved son Aba Abdullah, who was left on the plains of Karbala for three days without being washed, nor shrouded, nor buried. Wa Husayna, wa Madluma, wa Shahida. Inna lillah wa inna ilayhi raji'oon. وسيعلم الذين ظلموا أي منقلب ينقلبون والعاقبة للمتقين صلى الله وسلم عليك يا سيدي ويا مولاي يا أبا عبد الله صلى الله وسلم عليك وعلى الأرواح التي حلت بفنائك عليكم مني جميعا سلام الله أبدا ما بقيت وبقي الليل والنهار ولا جعله الله آخر العهد مني لزيارتكم altogether السلام على الحسين وعلى علي بن الحسين وعلى أولاد الحسين وعلى أصحاب الحسين جميعا ورحمة الله وبركاته and for the souls of all of the مؤمنين المؤمنات and the شهداء let us recite سورة الفاتحة مع الصلاة على محمد وآل محمد Allah